Welcome to Built to Play, your dose of video game news and culture. I'm Amnik Bali. And I'm Daniel Rosen. This week, we're talking about Leaky Birds and the 10 Doomsday Clock. Also, sexism runs rampant, Gears of War changes hands, and Candy Clones Saga continues to confound. If that wasn't enough, Daniel's going to bring us another bonus round. Plus, our interview this week are about the relationship between board games and video games. We have Larian Studios' Farhang Namdar on building a board game for Divinity Dragon Commander. And the chief designer of Plate Hat Games talks about converting Bioshock Infinite into a board game. But before all that, let's talk about our favorite NSA spies, cartoon birds. Cartoon, angry birds, specifically. They're yeah. angry cartoon birds. They have strong emotions about um, uh, counterterrorism. So, according to the latest documents leaked by NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden, the NSA and British government communications headquarters have been collecting info from leaky apps like Angry Birds about their players. So, users who fire up any app that is leaky, uh, and that includes anything from Angry Birds to Google Maps, uh, open their devices up to be mined for data. Uh, names, ages, address books, GPS coordinates, anything that is stored on your phone that these apps has, have access to is available uh, because of the terms of service agreements you generally skip over when you load it up. It actually says in it that signing signing it, saying that, yes, I agree to let to play this game, opts you into data mining for ad purposes. Your phone is being sold by, your phone data is being sold by Rovio to advertisers who then use you to target ads specifically. That's why they do um, the games for free. Often, when a product is free, the, that means the thing they're selling is actually your data. So you've got to be careful about that. But it also means that this company is collecting enough data that is perfect to be mined for profiles that the NSA could build using the meta text. In fact, uh, in a 2010 slide at a presentation, the NSA called iPhones and Android devices the golden nugget of uh, security info. Basically, because, again, that info is being sold in such bulk by Rovio to advertising firms, it's in a lot of places and really easy for the NSA to access. The Rovio says they had no idea that the, any of this was happening, but of course, Forcing people to opt in uh, into having their info sold doesn't exactly absolve them of anything. The bigger problem is the tendency for companies to take your data and then sell them to advertisers. There are currently there there are currently companies which specifically collect all this data and then sell this to advertisers because of that's where the revenue comes from. Right, advertising. And if you have more specifically targeted ads, you can sell the ads for more money. Yeah, so it's. Unfortunate, and it looks like it's going to be a growing trend, especially as, I mean, things on the iPhone ha- tend to be dirt cheap with apps. Mm-hmm. And generally that is subsidized by um, mining your info. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not recommending reading the terms of service because I can't honestly expect anyone <laughs> to do that, including me. But, but you know, next time aware. you get a high score in Angry Birds, just remember that there's an NSA agent cheering you on. Actually, that sounds way more hopeful than, yeah. than I thought it was Cheering good. you on and reading your text messages. Which is why we're going to mood swing in the exact opposite direction and go to the Nintendo Doomsday Clock. Set week. five minutes to midnight. Uh, yeah, we're in the week two. This is a follow-up of last week's story in which we saw their quarterly, uh, quarterly results go real bad. Um, last week's financial reports indicated a $15 million operating loss for the company. Nintendo has been taking some steps to try and calm down Fans and shareholders who were predicting doom and gloom for the company for a week there. Right. Uh, so Nintendo president Satoru Iwata is taking a 50% pay cut for the next five months, after which they'll determine where the company stands, uh, along with other Nintendo executives who will be taking a 20-30% to 30% pay cut, including the uh, creative director of Nintendo and Mario creator uh, Shigeru Miyamoto. Uh, admittedly, that's sort of a shareholder-focused move, because I don't think the fans really care about how much these people make. But, you know, personally, I think it's admirable that instead of shutting down a studio or laying off some lower-end employees, the executives chose instead to cut their own pay, especially when Japanese executives kind of historically don't make as much as their Western counterparts. It's interesting, especially considering the climate around how uh, video game employees are treated. The problem in companies like EA is that often the executive is deemed kind of the the saint and they had this ideal plan that someone along someone in the company screwed up that means mm-hmm. cutting employees they're the things that are interchangeable at least this kind of shows that the executives are taking the blame 
for this, this uh, these this mistakes, mistakes. What has happened? I, I think I think we theorized before the show that maybe part of that is that all Nintendo executives come from the game design sphere. Iwata worked at uh, HAL Laboratories on Ice Climber and Kirby games, and you know Miyamoto obviously made Zelda and Mario. That that may come from part of it, and that they know what it's like to be there. But either way, it's still better than firing you know firing a whole bunch of people. Yeah, yeah. Um, the for, so they did a couple things to help ease this out too. So. Iwata held a investors meeting where he said he'll make a few Wii-centric announcements. First, they confirmed that Nintendo would not be moving to other platforms, so iOS, Android, and other smart device platforms would uh, not in the cards for Nintendo. Uh, A rumor from the Japanese newspaper Nikkei claimed that Nintendo is, however, looking into free advertising experiences using characters and assets from their games in order to drive businesses to their console. Which, you know, that's sort of similar. The Pokemon company has actually been doing that for a while with kind of trading card-based things, but no actual games. Uh, but those have been over- traditionally kind of overpriced. Russ, the rumor claims that Nintendo's looking for free to kind of make free apps uh, for advertising purposes. Regardless, Nintendo's not competing on iOS, which is probably a safe bet. It's also a smart thing to do because I don't think they really... Um... At least with the margins they're used to, they would not be making the same amount of dough on iOS, at least at this point. Right. Um, but the idea here, and it's we have yet to determine whether this is going to be successful, is that they're going to create basically ads for the Wii U that you could get a taste of what the Sort of like U- an interactive ad. Not necessarily a demo. It wouldn't necessarily be the game itself in any way, shape, or form, but... Um promotional tools and kind of spreading the Mario brand. Mm-hmm. We have it's actually been we have for a such a popular character, we have surprisingly limited branding that's been spread around for Mario. I mean, around games for sure, especially Nintendo games. But I mean, there used to be a Mario TV show, there was a horrific Mario movie. Um you see some Mario toys now, but not like it used to be definitely. I mean, there used to even be Zelda toys and those don't exist anymore. Yeah, so Nintendo's also said that they're looking for more character licensing opportunities, um, which probably kind of cues into that. So expect the return of the Nintendo cereal system. I'd love to. and I I would love to eat some Nintendos. I've heard that thing is disgusting. It has to be. I mean, what else could it be? It was Mario's. Like, there were Mario Cheerios and, like, Fruity Pebbles Zelda cereal. Uh, I already don't like Fruity Pebbles. (laughs) No one likes Fruity Pebbles. Except for Barney. (laughs) Except... Um, Nintendo's also looking to reform their Nintendo Network ID system, linking accounts across other systems, over, as well as making some smartphone apps like the Miiverse. Um, Sony and Microsoft have been doing this already. Since Mark- 2005. Yeah, they, Microsoft has Smart Glass now, and Sony has uh, an app in which you can interact with your PlayStation ID, a PlayStation Network ID online. Um, so this kind of just would bring them in line with everyone else. It, I mean... Anything to deal with that Nintendo uh, Network ID system, yeah. to, to streamline it or improve it in any way would be a it great is, improvement. It is kind of across two platforms right now. If you have a 3DS one, if you have a 3DS, you can now create one, whereas you couldn't before, which was pretty amazing. Your wallet is now linked, but that's about the extent of it. You cannot share games across the platforms. There's no redownloading. It's a, it's kind of a nightmare. Um, as part of that, they're looking to create flexible price points for their games, including, for example, using the Nintendo Network IDs to reward customers who buy a lot of games, which, I mean, interesting. Nobody's really going for flexible price points outside of the App Store, so... Yeah, I mean, it's it would be nice to get rewarded and say, hey, you, you paid for, like, four Zelda games in a row. Why don't you get a discount on this other one? Mm-hmm. Yeah, or, I mean, you've been buying a lot of these Nintendo games, so we feel it. Or maybe if Smash Bros. comes out, we can discount all the Smash Bros.-related titles yeah, around like, it. Yeah, exactly. Kind of have a sale. Um, as for smaller kind of tidbits of info, uh, Mario Kart 8 was confirmed to come out in May. Um, DS games are coming to the Wii U Virtual Console. Uh, the only game that was shown was Brain Age in a mock-up. So, you know, no idea if that's what they're going to be selling. Not that I think anybody wants to buy Brain Age again. Um, Nintendo is looking at, uh, having an upcoming health initiative with something called the Quality of Living Project. Now, this, um, Iwata says that this is, will not involve wearable tech and will be some kind of joint hardware-software initiative. Um... We already kind of saw something like this with the Wii Fit, and that sold gangbusters, mm-hmm. especially considering that it was a scale for your game console. But I wouldn't be surprised if we see more of that. I mean, it's if it did so well for them, why not go further? If it can attract people to the Wii U, 
that's probably a smart move. Yeah, the way he put it was sort of he wants to find a way. There, Nintendo is looking at a way of tracking people's health progress without giving them something extra, you know, to carry around with them. Yeah, yeah. without having to put a pedometer in their pocket or something like that. I almost feel like I think it'll be almost. It might be a new piece of hardware. I doubt it. I have a feeling it might be a joint hardware software in that, like combining what the 3DS can do with the Wii U can do, and kind of giving you some software that works with that. The 3DS already has a pedometer built in, for example. That would be interesting. That would be a really smart choice to kind of tie those things together. I mean, you could have like a cross Nintendo health uh, game system or something mm-hmm. that would um, kind of like extend Wii Fit to the road. Essentially, if, if, if they could do something with Wii Fit that puts it in this, you know, if they rename Quality of Living Initiative the Wii Fit, you know, program or something like that and kind of stick it across your 3DS and your Wii U that you're almost you're always tracking your health, almost like the Nike Fuel Bands, but maybe with Nintendo's kind of more gamier uh, atmosphere to it. That would be that would be an interesting thing to see. Um, one of the th- uh, problems they've had with the Wii U is that they kind of assumed that these, they would have the same audience carry through the same kind of moms, grandparents, big families would take the Wii U, take the Wii, um, and just move over to the Wii U because it's a logical extension of the brand. But that didn't work out because they this game is hard, more hardcore, doesn't have easy to intuit motion controls. The gamepad isn't quite there, so. By comparison, this might seem like a actually smart choice. Yeah, it might it might be something as kind of a almost like an olive branch to those um, to, to the blue ocean market that they thought was theirs and then had and then lost again. Which uh, is weird because I don't think they expected that blue ocean market and then they got it and then they expected it and it blew, went away. Yeah, it's um it's the the great tragedy of the Wii U. Uh, Nintendo also says they're working on more games to take advantage of the Wii U gamepad. Uh, for context, their next big game, Donkey Kong Country Tropical Freeze, uh, has the gamepad black while playing on the TV. Yeah, we don't know what that means. It's going to be a long time. I mean, at least two, we're looking at two years down the line for them to make any significant changes. I doubt anything they have in a pipeline right now is going to mm-hmm. suddenly have... Uh, Gamepad support in any at least not point. yeah at least not significant gamepad support. I expect some things to be announced at E3 maybe, uh, but for now I think the games we're looking forward to are still the ones they announced late last year, like Yo- the Yo- the new Yoshi game, uh, Fire Emblem Crushing Megami Tensei, Zelda, Smash Brothers X, etc. Well, it's it's big. Con- it's all big talk coming from a company that still. Um, hasn't had uh, a, quite a unified unified front on what it's been doing in a while. We have all of its systems all over the place. So any kind of co- coordinated initiative to do anything on these platforms would be a nice surprise. Uh, you know, actually, the quality of living thing, I, I heard a rumor that it's just a po- the uh, Pocket Pikachu Tamagotchis that they're just going to resell. So you, those of you on Kijiji, remember, sell your Pocket Pikachus now because they're going to be worth a ton. In about two years. In about two years. <laughs> Anyway, speaking of things that are going to be worth a t- that were worth a ton, Gears of War was bought up by Microsoft. So Microsoft Studios top dogs Phil Spector has announced that they bought the rights to the Gears of War franchise, which is surprising because I thought they already had them. Yeah, I mean it is an exclusive. T- to be fair, anything made by Epic is basically an exclusive at this point. Um, the the series was previously owned by Epic Games and developed exclusively for Microsoft consoles, but now belongs wholly to Microsoft Studios. That means trademarks, all previous games, assets, everything. And they're dumping it on Black Tusk Studios? Yes, a, Van- a Vancouver studio that was formed in 2011, or 2010-ish, and kind of stayed under the radar until last year when they started hiring in droves. Nobody really knew why they were doing that, and uh, now we know. Well, and they, they did something interesting at E3 where they showed something, and then they said, oh, this is just a tech thing. We're not, we're just showing what we're capable of, and this is not an actual game. But I don't know. It, it'd be, they might have dropped that by now. Anyway, the the whole strategy is kind of identical with what happened to Halo. Um, Bungie wanted to move on to another property, um, in this ca- in that case, Destiny, and they didn't want to be st- straddled making all the new Halo games. So. so they sold the rights to Microsoft. Microsoft made a new development team, 343 Industries, and both of them went along their merry way. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's a valid way to kind of... I mean, Sony's been doing this for a while. Um, it picked up Sly Cooper, which is originally just a second-party game. Um, it, it did this with a bunch of other... Um, Russian Clank, Sly Cooper, yeah. All yeah. those all those early... Play, Jack and Axter, all those early PlayStation 2 kind of second-ish 2.5-party titles kind of became first-party Sony after they bought them from their original developers and handed them off to other developers to continue the series. 
Um, this, one of the, won't, hmm? this won't even be the first game, though, developed by a studio other than Black Tusk. Uh, right. Uh, Epic developed Gears of War 1 through 3, but uh, Gear, the most recent game, Gears of War Judgment, released last year, was pr- produced by Epic, but developed by People Can Fly, uh, developers of Bulletstorm. Yeah, yeah. And it looks like when we have one of it, they're going to have one of the Gears producers on staff. Yes. Uh, Rod Ferguson, who was the uh, kind of key Gears guy for years, recently joined Black Tusk, uh, presumably to keep working on the franchise. Uh, interestingly, he just came off a stint at Irrational helping wrap up production on Bioshock Infinite. I mean, he's been all over the place. He left Epic to go do something else. 2K gave him basically his own studio in Marin. Right. And, and then he left for Irrational. And... I don't know what he's doing with doing going to these other studios and then suddenly just jumping back on Gears of War. I guess it's a... I, I'm betting they're paying him a ton. According to the Globe and Mail, he's a Canadian citizen. Well, so, in that case... He's hardcore on this. Welcome back. Uh, get your maple syrup and your A's by the border. Pour it all over Marcus Phoenix. Yeah, I want to see... Okay, anyway. Uh, <laughs> all right. Um, this we can't is, talk about that on the radio. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sorry. That you that sec previous segment was just blocked by the CRTC. Um, uh, well, don't worry. We'll <laughs> instead, have it on our we will, instead you will just be hearing us singing "O Canada." <laughs> anyway, this is a interesting part. Uh, interesting for Epic's part because they've been moving out of game development for a while now. They've they still have Infinity Blade and they're working on that. But that's even developed by Chair though. Yeah, they just published that. The all that's really left is the Unreal Engine, which I mean makes a ton of money, so it makes sense. Right? Why would they bother? Uh, they were recently bought up by a Chinese company Tencent Holdings, which makes it feel like they're almost focusing on their assets and selling off anything that isn't immediately profitable. And you know what? With half the industry using an Unreal Engine for their games, I mean that seems like their most profitable enterprise. Why not focus on that? Yeah. Um, according to a recent rumor, though, Black Tusk was working on a game called Shangheist before the deals went down, which has presumably been canceled in favor of New Gears. Uh, that same rumor announced apparently that next year is going to be the year of Halo, the same way it was the year of Luigi. Well, we know we all know how the year of Luigi worked out. So, <laughs> year of Halo. When the year of Luigi ended, uh, Iwata cut his his uh, salary in half. Yeah, they really should keep, like... I know Master... I mean, Master Chief has Master in the title, but I don't think he should be running a company. No. I keep reading that as Master Chef. It's going to be really bad when they announce these games. All right, there's no real segue to this next one. It's kind of a sad story, but um, the... So, sexism. That's really the title here. Last week, a Facebook conversation between two big figures in the game industry spread across the internet where a man looking for an info on an unannounced game verbally harassed um, a woman sexually it's a disgusting conversation yeah it's it's really really hard to read he he makes various sexual advances on her during the conversation uh, talks about penetration and eventually the conversation ended with a an offer for oral sex so graphic that the woman actually blurted out of the image that she shared of the conversation uh, and it's great because this person turned out to be Josh 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 Mattingly of uh, the CEO of Indie Static, and he came out and said that it was him who did it. Um, of, he of course apologized and said what he did was reprehensible. Said that it was the response uh, because he's on uh, doing some substance abuse because his uh, brother recently committed suicide. Um, and that it's just been a loss of control. He, of course, he's recently stepped down as part of Indie Static. Uh, Indie Static being a kind of games review site, they mm-hmm. do they 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 gather as many indie games as they can. They kind of go through them. Um, the woman, on the other hand, has stayed mostly silent. She had a in- interview with Kotaku um, where she got a pseudonym, uh, Ali Mer- uh, Mercier, and said it gets difficult because you're in shock and your brain isn't really thinking. I am going to tell this guy that this is not appropriate. It's more of a, I'm just going to ignore this and hope it gets dropped. According to Mercier, she legitimately knew nothing about the game that he, that Maddenly wanted info on. Um, most of the in- most of that Kotaku interview details Mercier's desire to not be seen as a problem for spurning advances. Uh, she says, I don't want to be rude. I don't want to potentially burn a bridge here because of what if there's a future where I need that press contact or a professional relationship and the industry is so small. Mattingly and Mercier have met in person twice before the Facebook conversation. Uh, According to a 2013 survey from Game Developers Magazine, women make up about a quarter of the industry, but disgusting things like this just keep happening. I've I've even been thinking about getting out of a whole industry as a whole, she added, which would just be 
crushing for me because it's something I've wanted to be a part of my entire life. But I just, it's worn me down a bit thin. Mercier says that Mattingly has not contacted her with a personal apology as of yet. The full interviews on Kontaku features plenty of anecdotes and uh, fairly, it kind of highlights the gross sexism we face in the industry. Hopefully, this is a situation that can be improved. Uh, we don't really have much to say about this beyond... We, have, we, can, we can be hopeful. We have things like they making, dames making games and, yeah. and, you know, the difference engine here in Toronto at least. But if... With the situation the way it is, it does it. it it's only going to make uh, things more difficult for women trying to find a place within the games industry, and we need that. And Mercier is not like, I mean, according to the interview, she, she says she's not some sort of new hiring thing. She is a 10-year veteran of the industry. Yeah. She's been working for a very long time, and kind of hearing stuff like this happens, like this is this affects everybody. Yeah. And there's no, you know, there's no respect given, and it's it's you know it's just it's really depressing, and it's terrible to hear things like this. Let's hope that things like Dame Taking Games and Difference Engine can, at least here in Toronto, uh, improve things and improve the situation for for women. Um, those <laughs> those of you who still think like this, just look, it's reprehensible. You're gross. Please, I mean, I don't feel like I, I, I mean, I'm not going to speak for you, but just stop listening. Yeah, we don't like you. <laughs> anyway, moving on to a, something a little more. Off the wall, it looks like <laughs> Candy Clone Saga. So, uh, Daniel, what the heck are they doing now? So, after last week's uh, craziness with King, um, where the company can- trademarked the words Candy and Saga in relation to their game, Candy Crush Saga, uh, indie developers have started biting back. Uh, Stolen Goose Games has claimed that their game, Scamper Ghost, was ripped off by King for their game, Pack Avoid. The game plays the same, looks almost identical, has very similar features, and a nearly identical score display. Um, according to Stolen Goose, they were in to ha- talks to have King publish Scamper Ghost. Uh, MaxGames.com made a better offer, so they canceled negotiations with King. Then King turned around and released Packavoid, a game so similar it could literally only be a clone um, if they hadn't already messed with the Pac-Man trademark already. <laughs> um Lars Jornow of King emailed Soul and Goose Guys back and gave them this response. We wanted to sponsor Scamper Ghost since it's a great game and since we're actively looking for an avoider game at the time. The Flash world is filled of similar looking games and there are probably hundreds of avoider games with similar menus, a box with enemies and coins. And we thought Scamper Ghost was awesome. Stolen Goose tracked down the developers of Pack Avoid, who told them that they were given specs on Scamper Ghost in order to make a clone. According to Matt Porter, that developer, King chose the name because ripping off Namco is cool, and putting the... Sorry, King chose the name, uh, which I can only assume means that they think ripping off Namco is cool, but putting the word candy in somebody else in somebody else's game is grounds for lawsuits. <sighs> Ricardo Z- Zaccone, a King executive, released an open letter apologizing for the Scamper Ghost Pack Avoid cloning and had the game taken down. Of course, Zaccone defended the Candy and Saga trademarks and didn't apologize for digging against action against Stoic last week over the Banner Saga. Um, good. By the way, just uh, on the Stoic front, uh, Stoic has since said that they're going to keep publishing the Banner Saga, not going to change its name, and I don't think Candy's going to produce. Uh, yeah, I don't yeah. think King is going to pursue anything on that one because they know they're crazy. Yeah. Um, interestingly. All of if you take a look at all of King's games, um, U.S. Game actually recently ran a great feature on this. All of their games are clones. Oh, that's Can- incredible! Candy Crush Saga is a Bejeweled clone. Um, Bubble Witch Saga is Bust a Move. Every single one of their games is a clone. Well, that's not surprising. Again, like the iOS and Facebook industry has uh, in terms of games um, is largely filled with clones. It doesn't make it right. Um, but to see a big company like King do this is, you know, it's kind of critical. It's, it's real it's hypocritical. It's sleazy. But if uh, King is our cruel Facebook prince, then everybody's favorite Facebook popper is back in the news. Yeah. So Zynga is making a series of kind of confusing decisions, which I guess makes sense because they do have CEO Don Matrick on board. Um, He announced that they're laying off 314 developers, which is about 15% of Zynga's global workforce. According to Matrick, he spent his last six months at Zynga looking for the perfect size for agile, dedicated teams. Um, Matrick was previously VC, uh, the guy in charge of Xbox at Microsoft, who left to get an illustrious career at Zynga and looked where he's gone. 
When Matrick joined Zynga in June, he told press that he wasn't planning any more layoffs after the first wave of 520 that he came in on. Uh, this puts Zynga somewhere around a little bit under 2,000 employees, if the math checks out. Um, but meanwhile, while they are laying off people in droves, uh, Zynga shelled out $527 million for the British developer Natural Motion. Natural Motion is best known for creating the Euphoria engine. Um, Zynga says they bought them up to expand their profile with Natural Mo- Motion's uh, racing games, but $527 million for racing games amidst uh, layoffs seems doesn't quite ring true. Um, it looks like they're kind of just waving their hands in the air and hoping for something, like, just to catch something. Dom Matrix seems like he's just sort of making quick decisions that are just like, what can save this sinking ship? Which is weird, because that's kind of what happened when they announced the Xbox One. And then he left. Uh, well, it's at, uh, to those who got laid off, our condolences. Um, hopefully there's, there's uh, someone willing to take you guys on. Um, Zynga still has 2,000 employees, so they're not compl- and they're not completely bankrupt yet. Uh, Just check back with us in a year. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, this is time, time for that's the end of our regular news. We now to move on to our usual our bonus section, which is bonus round, which bo- bo- is bo- bo- bonus round. We will actually get a, a we need event. That was our New Year's resolution. Shit. We're still we're really lazy. <laughs> So we've got a bonus round. Uh, yeah, that's Daniel goes out, finds a bunch of news that is pretty damn weird, and uh, puts it in our headline. So what's up this week? So this week, um, we have uh, trading deals. The Microsoft Store is offering a once-in-a-lifetime deal. If you, you Armand, trade your old PlayStation 3 to them, they will give you $100 off an Xbox One. You know what that means the Xbox One will cost? Um, carry the one. $400? 400 You know what else costs $400. Um, is it a treadmill? Uh, that costs a lot more, I think. Is it a mini fridge? It is actually the can the copyright to the word candy. But <laughs> um, the other thing that costs four hundred dollars is a PlayStation Four, which will cost the same even if you don't trade your PlayStation Three in. So you can play all your PlayStation Three games and your new PlayStation Four. Uh, moving on. <laughs> in other weird monetary news, um, perhaps inspired by Square Enix's recent ports of classic Final Fantasy games to smartphones to reach a wider audience, uh, Bandai Namco has brought out the Super Famicom Classic Tales of Fantasia for iOS, and it is hot trash. Um, it is free to play. Um, okay, so it's free to play. That, that sounds in, that sounds interesting. I mean, it's not one of the worst Tales games. It's, it's among there, but it's not the worst. Um I guess I could go in and play it. What's going to happen to me if I well, try to play this? First of all, your face is going to melt off. Oh, God. <laughs> but before that happens, you will um, be prompted to pay for something called an Orb of Life, which costs uh, $1.99. It will revive you every time. It, it is a once-a-use item that will revive you when you die in a boss battle, and or any battle, and just bring you back to life with a buff. Um, the problem with this item is that Tales of Fantasia has been released many times over the last couple of years, since its original incarnation in 1995, I think, and has had many difficulty settings. So they've chosen to crank it up to Mania Mode, the hardest ever difficulty setting, with no option to change it. They've also gotten rid of most of the save points. About half of the save points in the game are gone, specifically those in front of Boston. Um, the other thing they've done is that the battle system, being kind of an intricate, high-low, button-based battle system, uh, you will now auto-run at an enemy and tap them on their head if you wish to hit them high, or tap them at their feet if you wish to hit them low. No, this doesn't work. Oh, God. Okay, can we... Can we just get, like, a game on the iOS or something that doesn't treat the original, like, junk jesus this is a game for trash goblins oh my god and jumping into local news last weekend was the global game jam the toronto chapter was held at george brown college and with us to talk to about it is randy ornstein hey randy hi how's it going not too bad so how was the global game jam for you this year uh i've got to say that toronto's physical chapter the game jam this year was probably the smoothest we've ever done it was our third year running the jam and we had uh, the highest number of attendants yet and really there were no fires to put out everything went incredibly well what well, what kind of fires would you be looking for in a, in running a game jam oh uh anything and everything uh, given that i handle the organizational and sort of um 
living arrangements section of it, anything from backed up toilets to people's computers dying to the internet going out through the whole building. Uh, you know, IT problems mostly, but we really didn't have any this year, which was great. For those who don't know, could you quickly define what a game jam is? Absolutely. A game jam is a event where you set a certain amount of time, sometimes as little as three hours, sometimes as much as a week or a month, depending on what kind of jam it is. And in that time, from start to finish, developers create a game. Um, usually there are rules about not using pre-constructed assets. More or less the idea is go from scratch. Uh, often you can use sort of pre-existing libraries of code or basic things and existing game engines, but the game that you create is generally supposed to be a unique creation of that time period. How did you um, get involved in running it? Uh, well, I have been involved in uh, helping both volunteer and then uh, more recently helping organize uh, the Toronto Global Game Jam. Sorry, the Toronto Game Jam, which is TO Jam, uh, which is a, a non-international jam. And from my experience with that, uh, Troy, who's my co-organizer for the Toronto Global Game Jam, uh, approached me three years ago and said, "Hey, I want to do this. You want to help?" <laughs> and everything else uh, is history. So you said that you had a record attendance. You know exactly how many people attended this year? Yes. Um, we had 309 registered jammers, and then we had uh, some last minutes and some additionals. So I think we, we clocked in at about 320 to 325 people in the building, counting volunteers and staff. Jeez, what did that look like? A lot of fun. <laughs> we're, we're very lucky to have a site at George Brown College in Toronto where they provide us with our entire game development school, which is two floors of a large building with classrooms equipped with top-of-the-line computers. So we're actually able to give every jammer who wants one a high-powered machine, which already has a bunch of game dev software installed on it. Um, and so it was a bunch of very busily filled classrooms and uh, occupied hallways. Did um did any are you allowed to sleep at the Toronto game the Toronto chapter? Oh yes, absolutely. Um, we had one room which was sort of carpeted and the lights stayed off, and that was our sleeping room. And uh, we actually had some people set up a tent on the first floor, which was pretty awesome. And they've actually been bringing that for the last uh, couple of years, and uh, so some folks were sleeping in there. And yeah, pretty much people kept out wherever they could. My, I think probably my favorite uh, sleeping arrangement was somebody brought a bunch of colored scarves and draped them over their desk to create a little like cubby hole underneath of it and swaddled themselves in blankets and just passed out under their desk, curled up in a fetal position. It was pretty awesome. <laughs> that sounds pretty intense. Yeah. Um, so is what do you think the appeal is of, of these game jams? Well, I think it's varied. I mean, the biggest draw for me and for most of the people I know who go is that there's really no... There's no environment quite like a game jam. The experience is unique because even at other festivals, which may be far better attended, it isn't a creative endeavor in the same way a jam is. At a jam, every single person who's there is busy creating to the, to the best of their ability and under an extreme deadline. So there's this fervor going on. And I can't think of another environment that engenders that and being able to walk amongst you know, 300 really creative artists and programmers and designers working their butts off and being able to just like see what they're doing and see what's being created and learn from the people around you. It's just an amazing experience. Um, and for, for developers, it's a great opportunity to learn both about your own limitations and how to scope your games and also Frankly, when you're in a building where there's going to be probably 100 people doing more or less the same thing you're doing, and you're all from different companies or independent or just hobbyists, it is a fantastic opportunity to learn because you'll see 50 different ways of doing it at least. Do you have any highlights from, from this year's jam? Okay. Well, actually, I've got to say that that's, that's easy this year. This year we had an absolutely amazing thing happen. We had someone email me a couple of weeks before the jam asking me if it was okay if they missed part of Saturday. They were going to come back in the evening, but they wanted permission because they wanted to go get married. 
<laughs> so we had two of our jammers actually get married on the Saturday, come back, jam with us the rest of the weekend, and then at the closing ceremonies, we bought them some roses and a cake and made, made a big hoopla out of it because, of course, we would. And that was just, I was just tickled pink about that, I've got to say. Wow. Has has that ever happened before? Not that I'm aware of. I mean, maybe, <laughs> but I, I've never heard of anybody leaving the jam, getting married, and then coming back and continuing to jam for the rest of the weekend. That's 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 a level of dedication which I am flabbergasted by. <laughs> All right. Um, are there any games that you can recommend, things that people should check out from this jam? It's difficult to say this year because there were so many good games and, frankly, because of my memory is so bad for the names people gave them. Uh, two in particular I really uh, think stand out was Lightbound, which was a... Uh, four-player local co-op, sorry, lo- local competitive multiplayer game um, designed by two jammers this year uh, who actually are part of a studio called Garden Night Games. And uh, there was also a game called uh, Sportball, which was rather fun where you had infinitely spawning little units that you had to move all at once to push balls towards the goal. Um, another local uh, competitive multiplayer. Like, thank you so much for your time, Randy. Oh, thank you. Randy Ornstein is one of the co-organizers of the Toronto chapter of the Global Game Jam. His most recent game, Archive Memoria Technica, is up for release in early 2014. It's a dual-stick shooter. Last week, Toronto game designer Damien Sommer talked about his new card game without question. He said that his favorite part was the human element. Like video games... Their systems are like really rigid, like whatever you program, there's no room there unless you also program that room like to explore in. Um, and which is why like pen and paper RPGs are still like being played and haven't been like completely replaced by like some sort of digital version is because like they allow for so much like creativity and like different experiences that video games just cannot provide. Um, the average game player doesn't really, you know, hang out with friends and play games together so often these days. Multiplayer games tend to be made for online play, and local multiplayer has been stripped out of a lot of big games. So we decided to look at one of the most social forms of video games, board games. Let's start with Bioshock Infinite. We talked to an expert on the game. I'm Colby Dowk, and I'm a game designer at Plat Hat Games. He's also the president of Plat Hat Games. He's designed a number of big board games like... Summoner Wars, and before all that, worked on Heroescape, published by Milton Bradley. In 2011, Colby received a call out of the blue from Irrational Games. They asked me if I'd be interested in working on a board game for Bioshock. And of course, I said yes, and it was followed up with a scheduled meeting to have another call, and uh, Ken Levine was on that call, and we kind of discussed we thought it should be in a board game, and we went down there and uh, to Boston and met with them, and um, and and they liked their pitch, and the rest was kind of history. That eventually became Bioshock Infinite: Siege of Columbia, a territory control game like Risk or Axis and Allies. What were the main challenges in kind of achieving um, kind of a construction of that world? I. Uh, you know, one big challenge was we didn't exactly know what the world looked like. And, you know, we needed to build a game board, but for a long time we were we were working in the dark for what the, the world actually looked like because we were co-developing at the same time video games being made. And so that stuff wasn't all laid out. It ended up uh, turning into us going out and meeting um, that irrational, bringing an artist with us, and actually playing the game um, in one of its earlier playable versions and taking screenshots of the various uh, parts of levels and and uh, fleshing out the actual geological part of the world. So how effective do you think you were at uh, kind of conveying um, uh, Bioshock Infinite's themes of, say, Manifest Destiny within... Um, the Siege of Columbia? Uh, I think we were as effective as we could be. Uh, I think that there is some uh, gray area there where you don't want to spoil the video game and the board game. Uh, 
because you want people to be able to enjoy both of those both of those uh, you know, pieces of content. And so, you know, we, we tried to do um, the thing where here's some alternate histories, here's some ways it could have happened, um, you know, by doing multiple Elizabeth timelines. And, and the Elizabeth timeline is kind of the element of the game that moves her story forward and expresses her story through the game. Um, and then the rest of it is just like set pieces. Let's put the, let's put this world out there. Let's put these enemies out there. Let's put these leaders out there. And then um, by the way that they interact through the gameplay, it's, it's an emergent narrative develops. It's a it's a strength of board games. It's like you take away a bunch of those cinematics. You take away uh, a bunch of that stuff, and and you end up leaving more to the imagination, which lets you do the emergent narrative thing you know, in some ways, uh, better than video games are, are able to do. Now, one of the key differences in board game design and video game design is emergent narrative. Emergent narratives are stories that come from playing the game. Like, in Far Cry 3, when you're trying to kill all the soldiers around a stronghold, and all of a sudden a tiger shows up and just mauls them all to death. So clearly, emergent narratives can occur in video games, too. For example, Dark Souls, Super Metroid, and Skyrim are all great games that allow you to create your own personal stories in addition to the narratives that are, you know, go on through the regular game. But since board games are social by nature, emergent narratives are usually part of the design. I mean, with something like Bioshock Infinite, it's a first-person shooter. You're going in as one player versus all these NPCs that are built out. But most board games tend to be multiplayer, whether cooperative or competitive. And that kind of changes the way that you have to imagine how the game is played. You don't really have AI available to you. How how does like having that having multiple players kind of change the way that you approach um, a game? Yeah, sure. You mentioned you don't have AI available to you, but it's also you know AI is the result of these games being built be played by one player because that's that's the most commonly way the common way that video games are built tabletop games the most common way they're played is multiplayer and so you go in knowing you're building a multiplayer experience and so you can engineer elements that are all about human intellect interacting with human intellect and you see that in video games but it's more common for games to be for video games to be single player experiences. And so um it's also your know, board games allow you to uh design things around the, the I mean they're a social experience. And so you can play to that strength when you're designing it. You can design elements that are uh intended to be little social experiments if you will. Uh we've got a game coming out called uh, Dead of Winter, and it was really like the focus in the development was how can we make this uniquely tabletop? How can we make this game an argument for why every video gamer should play tabletop games? Because they can bring something totally unique to your gaming experience. What about the the physicality of board games appeals to you? I think it's getting together with friends. It's really, it's about that face-to-face interaction. It's about that, you know, mind-to-mind uh, challenge. It, it, I mean, it's, it's as much about, you know, eating the pizza and drinking the soda and um, laughing with a friend and, and eat, you know, I talked about emergent narratives a number of times in this interview, and they're just so much more lively when you've got somebody there because you'll find that, you know, your friend says something about uh, what just happened that kind of spawns your imagination of like, oh, they saw that in this way, and, and you might reciprocate on, a, on another time. You're, you're kind of working together to tell this emergent narrative. And um, and that's really fun and cool, and, and you know it goes back to you know like Dungeons and Dragons and and things like that where 
it's really like if, if I'm, I, you know, and, and this might just be me, but if I'm at like a, a social gathering, I often find myself, I don't know, kind of feeling awkward. What do I talk about with people I don't know? And the really cool thing about board games is they're this focal piece. They're this thing that can drive the conversation, that can drive the social interaction. Um, and, and I just find that to be so fun and, and cool. And then on top of that, there's also like this artifact quality to them. This is something physical that I own. And I can take out the pieces and look at them and, and hold them in this got this tactile sense. And, um, you know, software is so intangible and, and, it, and it tends to go away and just kind of live in our memories, whereas, you know, board games are something that's actually up there on the shelves, and there's something with really long shelf lives, too. You know, people that, that play board games will go back to the, you know, the same board game time after time, year after year. Um, with video games, they seem to be an experience you have and then put away. Can you give me like a personal example of a story that you've made from a game you've designed? Perhaps maybe HeroScape? Uh, there, are, there are all sorts of fun stories. There's the time where uh, one of our friends, he was, he was a little more intermittent than the rest of us. And he's very like non-aggressive and... Um, he he always had yeah, he had names for the characters that weren't their actual names, um, and and it was just his personality. And he uh, he sits down to the table, and um, he had showed up late, and we already had like way more people than are ever supposed to play Hero Escape at the table. And he kind of he gets his armies of his favorite people that he's got you know his his goofy names for, and um, he he sits them he like. Uh, wedges himself between two players that are already sitting at the table and, and carves out a space for himself on the map, squeezed in between these two armies, um, you know, and, and talking up all the characters and how they're going to kick so much butt. Uh, but the, the turn order had already been uh, determined at this point. It doesn't, doesn't make any sense. You start with the first player, you go clockwise. But at the time, we hadn't had much game experience and we had, I think we had determined turn order with a die roll. Uh, and, um, and because he came late, we just put him last in turn order. And so here he is between two people that were going to take a turn before him. And one of them goes, destroys half of his army. The other one goes, destroys the other half of his army. He's wiped out before he ever gets a turn. And, um, and <laughs> this is an epic game of like eight people at the table. And so he's, he's, uh, and he's wiped out on turn zero. Uh, and, uh, you know, whenever he shows up, like that, that's a conversation, that's a, that's a memory I've had. Um, people recall to me on multiple occasions, you know, if, if you got me started on Lord of the Rings role-playing game by Decipher, I, uh, I have a, I have a million of them, but, um, I don't know that any of them are of any particular interest to your listenership, but those are some examples of just how the stories will evolve from friendships um, with this this game uh, that's that's the catalyst for uh, all these these interactions. Colby Dock is the president and chief game designer at Blade Hat Games. Their next game is Dead of Winter. But let's get back to video game design. Say you're trying to build a turn-based strategy game. You could go on your computer and start coding to build all the pieces. You could spend weeks and weeks building the system and then find out, Drat, doesn't work, this isn't fun. And then you're back to coding a whole new system. Or you could build your game as a board game first. That's what Larian Studios did for the turn-based portion of Divinity Dragon Commander. My name is Farhang Nomdar, lead game designer of Larian Studios. Farhang needed a proof of concept to show that how the turn-based portion of the game was going to work. So, instead of starting with code, he started with a board game. So, um, the easiest way to actually uh, prototype that and try that out is by uh, looking at games that already do it well. Um, and then you start infusing the ideas that you want to uh, put in your game, in those board games, to like rapidly prototype it. I mean, usually it 
will resemble it closely, but not exactly. So it gives you a very good indication of what's it, you know, what it's going to be like once you put it in the uh, actual game. Divinity Dragon Commander is a turn-based real-time strategy RPG. It's a lot of things, and it basically works on three different levels. There's the upper level RPG, there's the bottom level real-time strategy, and sandwiched right in the middle is this board game-like turn-based strategy where you can go from region to region taking over rebelling areas to conquer for your nation. So what did this board game version look like? Um, what were you using for things like game pieces and the actual board? Well, basically, we just went to the shop and bought uh, every uh, turn-based strategy game we really liked. And um, we ended up um, prototyping, you know, prototyping the first versions with, uh, you know, pawns from Risk, uh, chess, all kinds of stuff. Uh, basically, anything that felt good, uh, you know, like dice, D20s. But the easiest thing was obviously to uh, use the boards and stuff we had. And once you actually get a better vibe for it, then you start adjusting it, like making your own map, um, using specific die, um, whatever. You know, all that stuff comes uh, from it. Or, or cards, you know, cards in the game as well. Um, you know, usually you make those things uh, up front. Uh, but the first prototype is always uh, gathering everything that you know from other existing board games, and then you start uh, tweaking it in the other prototypes and creating your own assets, uh, typically. So how many versions of that board game did you go through? Jesus, are you serious? Oh, wow. Uh, we had, I think, about... Oh, God. Because we had the preliminary ones. That was like uh, post-production. Uh, those There was about eight, nine of those. Um, and then we had the ones during production... Uh, those, those were adjusted as well. Uh, it's about, you know, I think we had about four versions during production. And, um, well, afterwards, we didn't, <laughs> we didn't really play anything with it. So, you know, pre-production we had a lot. Post-production we didn't have any. And uh, in the middle we, we had a couple, yeah. So this, from what you're describing, the, the initial version of this board game kind of looked like a mishmash of a whole bunch of elements from different board games kind of put together. That's suit. correct. And did that change over the course of doing these multiple prototypes? Well, yeah, I guess so, because our, our world maps change. So typically that's that's the first thing you do, because, you know, the, the the map itself, the layout of the map is quite a heavy limiter um, on your uh, gameplay. So, uh, you know, it's really weird, because if you get the layout of the map right, the game usually feels right but what you need is uh, game mechanics that actually play well in any type of circumstance because if you mess up the risk uh, uh, strategy map itself the countries you lose a lot of uh, intricate details with crossing uh, you know with the crossings from like uh, africa to brazil and stuff like that if you cut those or rearrange them then you get a different type of gameplay but typically risk um, is really based uh, and tweaked on those uh, uh, connections of the countries and the amount of troops you actually get. Uh, but typically, your game mechanics should be solid enough to actually work in any type of uh, map environment. So that's that's actually a, a pretty big uh, um, thing you'll have to notice there and pay attention to. This is actually fairly common practice, especially with strategy games, because it helps you refine mechanics quickly. Well, we learned that we didn't really need to have a lot to have a lot of fun. Um, you know, when you tend to design a game, um, you usually go overboard and then it gets tuned down and then you, you know, you, you, you're left with the essentials that really make your game fun. So that's the good thing about a board game. Usually it shows you immediately that, um, the mechanics you need, you know, it shows you what mechanics you really need from the beginning and, and what mechanics are, uh, you know, just, uh, gimmicks or stuff that you won't really, uh, need. So concerning that, that's that's really fantastic. It basically trims down the idea you had on the paper to the essentials. That's that's very useful. Again, if it's applicable. Is there a specific example where that worked out for Dragon Commander, where you had something that got trimmed down in the board game stage? Yeah, we had like these um, 
you know, we had like these uh, little units that were dragon, uh, dragon knight uh, units, and these actually determined. Uh, um, this this was like a fantastic, awesome unit, and uh, we had this idea that like, yeah, you're you're dragon knight, you're the commander, so you should grow while you're uh, going through this experience. So we had this whole side game on the board game where you actually every turn had a chance to, uh, uh, you know. To, to throw some dice and uh, progress your character. And the further he got, the more things it would unlock and the cards that it would give him. So this was specifically made for the character development of that one unit on the battlefield. Now, eventually in the game, <laughs> the only goal this unit had, uh, which wasn't in the, in the map, actually, it, it just allowed you to play one specific battle in one turn of that game so if you had like six battles you could only be the commander in one of them so you could only play the real-time strategy uh, and dragon uh, combat in one battle that you had and that was the only function it really had eventually the whole character development and all that stuff we did make it on the side but in the game it's logical because you're the commander and you invest in these skills that your dragon knight uh, uh, has so it was a kind of bit, you know, we went overboard and we had a lot of fun with it, but in the game it was pretty intrinsic to the game design because the character development was already incorporated in there and it, like, didn't happen anyway as we planned it uh, in the board game. I mean, the game is largely single, a single-player experience. Um, how did you... The fact that it has to be a multiplayer as a board game, how did you end up mimicking um, how NPCs would react based on these players... Well, the thing is that any 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 game really has its very simple elementary uh, set of rules, right? So these are the foundations of uh, of every game. Um, and what you start noticing is after you play uh, for a while, you start noticing the behaviors that other players have. So, for instance, if I would get near your capital, automatically you would start producing more units in your capital to fortify it. You'd start, uh, you know, any any sea countries that have uh, a lot of reach you would start putting units there in case anybody wants to sneak by so you could actually see people sneak by and stuff like that. So by playing uh, the board game, we noticed that these strategies uh, were there. And obviously, you know, uh, a lot of people here also have board game experience. So if you often uh, play those games, then you start mapping these behaviors on the AI. And then based on those fundamental mechanics, you start making a rule base and all these AI uh, characters just basically uh, use that rule base to uh, uh, figure out what they want to do. Of course, it's a bit more complex uh, than that because we use genetic algorithms and stuff to deduct and conclude what locations would have been attacked more frequently or less frequently. Uh, every country has its own, uh, you know, weight. Like capitals would be uh, would have a higher weight, so that the NPC would, uh, you know reason about them more frequently uh, if they were under attack and that's depending on the weight of the countries and the actions it would decide what it would do so uh, basically we use the board game um, uh, playing behaviors as uh, a rule set for the AIs to react Have you gotten into playing more board games yourself after this experience? Well we have played quite some board games uh, after, after Dragon Commander of course you know when you're busy with it you know, you're you're more prone to uh, to engage in uh, games like that, and of course, a lot of journalists that came by, you know, a lot of uh, uh, game writers and stuff like that, and critics, uh, they they also had like their remarks and and suggestions of what games we should play. So because of that, we did play quite some, uh, new games. But generally, uh, got no time to waste, man. <laughs> I wish I had time to get with my friends like we used to and uh, and play board games and such. But uh, uh, life is going faster. Where is that that uh, Dragon Commander prototype now? It's uh, on a shelf, and it's about five meters away from me, and I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> It's in pretty good shape. I mean, it's got a decent world map, uh, hexagon-style world map. I mean, we could play it perfectly. It's got, like, all these uh, 3D-printed uh, uh, units that, that cost a shitload to, to make. <laughs> but uh, it, it's actually in, in pretty good shape, the board game as it is right now. It's, it's pretty playable and presentable, but it doesn't really have a rule book. I mean, it has, like, three sheets in there that explain the entire game, but it's, you know, not, not user-friendly or anything. All right. Thank you so much again for taking your time to talk to me, especially during this heavy development period. No problem, man. No problem.
Farhang Namdar is the lead designer at Alarian Studios. Alarian is currently working on Divinity Original Sin. Divinity Dragon Commander is available on Steam, and Original Sin will be out this summer, although it's currently available on Steam Early Access. And that's it for this week. I'm producer Armin Bali, And I'm featured editor Daniel Rosen. Built to Play was made with the help of... Randy Ornstein. And Farhang Nomdar. For the extended version of interviews you just heard, check out our website, builttoplay.ca. Remember to leave a review on iTunes so we know how you're doing and more people can find the show. But leave a positive review because if you leave a negative, we'll make you play Tales Fantasia and we won't even give you the option to pay for those extra lives. Plus, check out our website for a theme month, What's a Game? This week, we're wrapping up with a final look at why it just doesn't matter. Next month, though, we're going to get sexy. And there's nothing sexier than passion. Our interviews next week will be all on passion. We're looking at what drives designers and fans. We're usually on the air at the Scope at Ryerson every Saturday at 1 p.m. and we run every Monday and Thursday at 1 p.m. as well. And we update the site every Sunday. You can find us on Twitter at built play and me personally at Clarkon. And I'm Daniel underscore Rosen. And trust us, we're being real, real merciful about the Tales of Fantasia thing. Thank you so much for listening.